Welcome to Distinguished Devs, where I interview outstanding developers who perform at their peak to lead large open source projects and make an impact at top companies. Carsten Heitzler, also known as Rastaman, has been described as one of the few genuine legends in the Linux community. He's the leader and founder of the open source project Enlightenment, a window manager for Linux which is now used in millions of products around the world, including cameras, phones, Samsung smartwatches, smart TVs, and even fridges. He's traveled the world working on Linux and graphics for a whole host of companies, including Red Hat and Samsung, and he's currently a director of open source software at Arm. In this interview, we talk about how he started Enlightenment, motivation for learning, leading an open source project and open source in a commercial context, and how Carsten initially failed his C programming module at university. Before we jump in, uh, this podcast is just being launched, so if you have any comments or feedback, ways to improve, I would really love to hear them. So I hope you enjoy Carsten Heitzler. Carsten, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time. You're well known for creating Enlightenment. For those who don't know, can you explain what it is and how it started, where the idea came from? Uh, it's a window manager. Now, most people probably don't even know what that is. It's a specific concept that came from X, the X11 world, where X is all about policy, not me- sorry, all about mechanism, not policy. So if you run an X server without a window manager, windows will appear on screen. You can't move them, you can't resize them. There is no ordering at all. They'll probably just appear in the top left-hand corner overlapping. You can't move focus from anything. You don't get virtual desktops. It's pretty much useless. There is no policy. The thing looks broken. I started with using Unix at university. The first time I saw it was in my first year. Um, And I had to kind of figure it out and I discovered ran a window manager. Before that, I was an Amiga person. I come from the 16-bit days, and before that, Commodore 64 and Vic 20 from the 8-bit days, which didn't have display systems at all. I didn't exist. On the Amiga, that didn't kind of exist really either, so it was new to me as a concept when I came to X. So I toyed around with the existing window managers at that time, and FVWM was finally the one I discovered that was actually kind of featured and decent. Um, I used that for quite a while. After having used it for a while, I started to want things that it couldn't do. And since it couldn't do them, I just went, okay, how do you make it do them? Lo and behold, I discovered that people released source code for these things. There were tarballs of this. So at the time I went, ooh, this is all in C. I'd better learn C, maybe. So I started tinkering with it. Um, Little did, little did people know that you weren't really taught C at university. Um, it was a byproduct of doing the operating systems course where you were kind of expected to learn it. Um, they had a summer course of Go Learn C, which I couldn't be bothered doing much for, so I failed. But it was right after this they started tinkering with window managers and started teaching myself Xlib and C and everything else. So by the time I finished university, I'd written Enlightenment, written a window manager. I'd already hacked on RxVT to make changes, etc. And by then I'd probably written more C than any other student, which actually functioned from scratch. So they then sent me my certificate for that C course saying you passed. (laughs) (laughs) Going, 
that can't be right. <laughs> All right. Mm. And, but this is a whole part of a university and learning. Mm. I learn how I tick. Yeah, and yeah. my learning was, I don't put effort into things I'm not interested in. Mm. I suck. <laughs> yeah. I suck badly. Mm. Once I can get interested in something, I put effort in and I mm. can do well. And at that time, doing that course for the operating systems course, I was not really interested. Okay, so what would you say to developers who have perhaps learned more recently on languages like Python or JavaScript, who would like to learn C for the benefits of, you know, knowing what's going on under the hood? How do you suggest that they start learning? This is actually a principle of learning anything. It's mm. whether it's C or not. Yeah. You've got to give yourself a reason to want to spend the time and to put the effort in and to want to do it. Mm. Learning for the sake of learning can kind of work. But invariably, it doesn't necessarily work that well. You need something else to drive the learning. Like, so you want to accomplish a task and the language is the mechanism via which to do it. And you're going to have to get good at that to be able to be fluent in the tools to get your task done. My advice would be to do anything. You've got to give yourself something you're interested in, a goal, something you really believe and you want to do and you think will be either make your life better, make the world better, whatever it is that tickles your fancy. Do that, but give yourself a task. Make sure that task is within grasp and within reach, not so ridiculous you'll never get there. And then you plod along on that task and you get it done. This will drive everything you do. It will drive your desire to learn. It'll drive your actual learning. It'll bring you back to the table again, or back to the keyboard, and the screen, to mm. go and spend that time. One of the reasons my university results were generally all over the place. So if you look at my scores in subjects like computer graphics, it's like right at the top of the class, you know, like right near top marks. Um, in other subjects, like it was like just barely squeaky over the line passes, which I eventually figured out how to just manage because I didn't spend the time doing that. Instead, I invested the time in the things that worked for me. And that was a lot of time in the computer laboratory, sitting around, beating my head against compilers. I literally would sit there with a manual page and man, X open display. <laughs> Man, X create simple window. Man, I literally like read the entire set of manual pages on every Xlib function. There's a lot of boring work to get yourself to an end goal. And you can get through that work if you keep that goal in mind. Now, admittedly, at the time where I say, I was hacking an FWM there, I said, you know what? I can't modify this as much as I want. It's really beginning to come ugly and horrible to hack. I'm just going to start this from scratch. I think I know how to do it. Every single person told me, you're insane. No one writes window managers. It's complete insanity. It's a huge amount of work and no one ever gets it done. Don't do it. And people told me again and again and again, oh, it's insane. Don't do it. To some extent, I would encourage people to have the courage or backbone or stubbornness to not listen to those people. <laughs> to, when someone tells you it's too hard, when someone tells you no, ignore them and do it anyway if you believe in it. Because you can get it done. And I pumped out a window manager. Yeah, yeah. And I took a I took a path that everyone said no one wants that. They were wrong. People wanted it. And yes. in my gut I felt that 
the Amiga was a much nicer operating system. It looked prettier, it looked sexier, it felt nice. Using it was a joyful experience. Using Unix, especially AWM or TWM or the boring stuff, was not a joyful experience. It was not nicely configured. It was not looking pretty. It wasn't nice and smooth. But I knew the hardware was so much faster and more powerful than my little 16-bit Amiga at home with six megabytes of RAM. And, but it looked better. It felt better. It worked better despite yeah. its lower end. And it's because people didn't spend the time on that and they didn't spend time making it nice. And I thought that this was something to spend effort on. Everyone said it's a waste of time because most people were only interested in that functionality. But reality is there was a huge number of people out there on the internet who just went, oh, I want that. So Once you show, show it's possible, you put the screenshots up, people just went, oh, I want that. Yes. Wow. You can do that. Going, yeah, of course you can do it. Didn't you read the manual page? So I how, did. Long, how long did it take between you starting the project and realizing that other people were really interested in this? Six, six months or so. Okay. And did you start it as a project with the intention to release it or did you just no. start it for yourself? Started for me. Yeah. So it started, it, the whole thing started with me hacking an FAWM, then me making modifications to FAWM to do things like change all the borders to be from beveled gray boxes to be able to stick pix maps there and stretch them and do interesting things and have shaped windows and so on and everyone went wow how do you do that i went well there's like a shape extension over here and you do that and pix maps and you just you just do these simple things and you can make it work and everyone's kind of amazed like you can do it i'm going no it's actually fundamentally really simple just no one bothered um and i made that work and what i did is i just put screenshots up then i started getting emails can we have the source code i went okay. <laughs> I didn't know what open source was. In fact, it wasn't even a term at that time. Mm. Um, so eventually I just went, okay, here's a table of that. And I eventually changed it. I rewrote it all from scratch and I now called it enlightenment, blah, 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 blah. And people wanted the source code. They wanted to download it. They asked for it. And so I put it up because they asked for it. I didn't do this for the intentions of releasing it. I mostly did it for me. Mm. Um, and to some extent, I still am happy to do it just for me. Mm. A lot of people I notice are driven by, I must publish it and get famous, or I must have users, or I must have a user base, and I must be popular. And they always become slaves to being the popular thing. As long as you become slaves to being the popular thing, you generally don't innovate. Mm. You just follow what someone else does because yeah. what's popular is what's out there. Mm. It's a it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. So how do you deal with that as a as the kind of leader of the project when there are people asking for features and pull requests and all this kind of thing? Um, how do you decide what's important to the community, what's important to you, which features you're going to work on? I generally. <laughs> I generally work what's in or what work on what's important to me. Mm. What's important to me may be influenced by what is important to other people as well. Yeah. So if a whole bunch of people say I would like this and I go okay and I th think about it I go actually it's a trivial amount of code. It goes very it goes quite high up the to-do list of things because yeah, yeah. it's like this much work that much gain. Mm. Yeah. If it's like oh we want this I look at it and I go no way on this God's green earth am I going to do that for the simple reason that it's a massive amount of work and for to make a few people happy like look if you really want that 
there's a lot of other projects and window managers out there that have what you want maybe they're better suited for you and I think that they, there shouldn't be one thing to rule them all and in the darkness blind them. there shouldn't be one window manager yeah. that there is health in having a range of them because they address different areas and markets and one thing I'm pretty stubborn about is that enlightenment shouldn't spend its days trying to be popular and be like everyone else even if it gets it more users because a simple reason it would lose its soul um it, in human terms it's the same reason why you look around and there's so many people who try and rescue their cultures and their languages from disappearing instead of for example oh well just easier let's all speak english because it's more popular or whatever um it's you don't want to lose your soul in the process so I have to kind of walk a line of add features that are going to make people happy. Mm. Generally, I'm okay with that, but that's why they become optional features you turn on. Oh, I want mm. that. You turn it on. It doesn't necessarily going to be the default, yeah. but it's going to be there and you can turn it on if you want. I'm generally happy with that direction of stuff. Um, I don't want to lose the soul of the project in the process. Mm. So you, you do a balancing act. Um, you don't want to stop having a reason to exist. So it's always a conversation. It goes back and forth. And I do modify what I say depending on my audience, which is why I like it to be a conversation. Because mm. I want to know, like, okay, you're a person who doesn't even know C at all. Are you like, yeah, I've done C for years. This The language is not a struggle. It's something else. Mm. And I want to know which blanks to fill in and which things I can depend on as already being existing knowledge etc um, so with these interactions with users and developers and actually the whole project obviously enlightenment is a very mature project now um have you seen any changes in the way that open source is run or or the culture in general from when it was started up until now um yes so very early days of of the open source world was much more of a self-service that means a lot of your users were also developers, they knew how to do stuff, and they kind of just did what it is they needed, they sent patches, and it worked much more fluidly. The It is unfortunate as a downside. There seems to have, over the last few decades, grown what I will term a sense of entitlement, where there are many users out there who believe they're entitled to free stuff, like, I want you to implement this feature because I want it. Yeah, sorry, I don't have time. Well, well, I won't use your window manager then. That's fine, go use someone else's. Uh, you'd be surprised how many times that kind of conversation, in, in yeah. different wording maybe, but boiling down, yeah. has happened, and the frequency at which that has happened has increased over the years. Um, and that is one of the things that's changed that I've been very disappointed in that because it... The sense of entitlement to free stuff is unfortunately a side effect of the open source movement of pushing here have free code. Most people think of free as in just I want it for free. They don't think of free as in freedom. And they're not willing to put in the time and effort. I understand that they may not have the time to put in the effort and it may not be a priority for them. But then they don't make allowances for since I'm not willing to put the time and effort in, I get what I get. You know, shrug, move on. 
um, they kind of become demanding. It's like, well, I'll just, for example, I'll just go back to Windows. It's so much better. Or like Mac OS, so much it all go to use GNOME. You, you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Um, it's kind of the, the threats of, I'll just use something else there instead of your thing. And that kind of rolls back to the popularity thing. Mm. That if you're driven by being popular, you'll get caught in this vicious cycle of basically what you might call emotional blackmail, of users blackmailing you into, well, if you don't do my thing, I'll use someone else's. And since your goal in life is to be popular and have people use it, therefore you kind of get forced into doing what they want because that's your goal. So my that's one of the reasons my advice is don't make that a goal. If you get users as a side effect of doing what you do, thumbs up, awesome, great. But don't make it the primary goal because you'll end up in a very nasty, vicious cycle. Mm. Note, this is vastly different from an enterprise business where your job is to make money and your job to make money to pay the bills. You kind of need to be popular to bring in the money. Your mm. job is to bring in money. And money comes with sales or popularity, generally speaking, blah, 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 number of users. So you have to. But that's not the case when you do an open source project and you're willing to spend the time and effort into it. So what happens when you then get sponsored by a company to work on the project or you go and work for the company to develop the project? How do you balance out what's right for the project with uh, what's needed for popularity by the company? Well, for for a lot of things, I've actually worked on Enlightenment and its code for companies. And yes. in that case, what the company needs becomes a very high priority. Yeah. It does not become an absolute. Mm. If you do what's necessary for the company, but destroy the project in the process, it's like killing the goose that lays the golden egg. You can't go kill the goose that lays the golden <laughs> egg. <laughs> yeah. And... As a project founder who's done it for a long time, you're probably good friends with the goose. Mm. You know how the goose works, and you know what probably is going to kill it. So sometimes you have to say no. Mm. But what the company wants does become much higher priority. I have made mistakes. I've said yes to things which I should not have, and I've kind of learned to be a lot more conservative as a result. Um, I've I've learned the things that harm the goose <laughs> and make the goose very unhealthy and unhappy. Like what? Um, saying yes to too many patches, even if... So, what you sometimes end up with is you end up with companies who then throw a bunch of engineers something, they send you patches, and those engineers want their patches reviewed and put in and approved. And if you start rejecting them, they get all unhappy, even though they're three desks over there, and they say, but I have a deadline, and you go, yeah, so what? Your code is not good enough. <laughs> Make it better by the deadline. That's not my job. That's yours. I'm telling you how to make it better. Um, or what happens much more often is they go make some code without ever talking to you about it first or talking at all outside of their own head or what is they were going to do. And suddenly a whole bunch of code turns up and you go, where did that come from? And why is that there? And why do you want to do this? So there was no background. There was uh, the reasoning. And sometimes the reasoning is specious. Um, it's not really good reasoning. It's reasoning from someone who doesn't understand the project and is basically trying to solve it their way in from someone coming from the outside. No, 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 no. If you wanted to reach your goal of this over here, you would do it a completely different way here. That's why you should talk about it first because you'll get directed that way. And uh, I've said yes to too much of that kind of code to make people happy. Um... 
I've learnt also to be much more conservative because the whims of this year's product suddenly are completely different to the whims of next year's product. And sometimes simply just waiting it out means you can get rid of a whole bunch of stuff that you have to throw away 12 months later yeah. because um, the whims change. Uh, so it's been more about moulding that conversation and trying to get these things to mesh and work together um, to produce something better. Um, and that's difficult. It's a difficult balancing act. And there is a lot less technical there and a lot more people. Okay. There's a lot more in conversation and talking than there is in code. And you eventually end up with something like, I, I've described this to people, it's 5% code and 95% communication. Mm -hmm. um, at which point all the people who jump up and down about like, oh, C is horrible and so hard to write. Well, first of all, I've done C for so long. I go, I can write it just as quickly as any other language. And if you look at a bunch of C code I have and you say, well, here's a C++ for that, here's this, you'll find the C code is the same amount of code. It's just as good, the same level of complexity if you have the right library stacks and everything involved providing with the right tools. Mm. Um, and I say, look, if you know your way around this, it's just as easy. The language isn't the problem. Language is a problem when you don't know the language. That's every single language, it's no different. <laughs> yeah. People are just comfortable with certain things. The problem is in the concepts, the ideas, the designs, and the communication. That's where 95% of your work is. So don't get carried away with the 5% of your work that is coding, regardless what language it is. Mm. Worry about the 95%, which directly influences that 5% as to how easy or hard it is. And if you just keep doing work that 12 months later you throw away and start again yeah. or not. So focus on that 95. Awesome. Uh, okay, so now a pretty generic question. Um, what in your mind separates a good software engineer from a great software engineer? Attitude. Simple attitude. Um, they have to care. At the end of the day, skills and intelligence are great. You know, knowing a language or you know, being able to balance a balance a B tree on a whiteboard and, you know, um, you know, it, that's great but it's actually not that necessary most of this stuff is learnable or you can look up or you can figure out when you need to figure it out um, knowledge and stuff is not that important it's attitude that matters more than anything else it is like the 99% of what's important and the attitude needs to be I care if you care, if you want to make something good. Now, when, when you say good, you might mean I want to make really awesome code that is going to, you know, pass a static analyzer with zero problems or has zero compile warnings or, you know, has zero crashes or bugs filed against it. That is a form of caring and quality. There are other forms of caring quality in that I want this to be a great result for my end user. The person who's using this doesn't care what the static analyzer says. They care that the thing is fast, that it responds quickly, that it does what they expect it to do, that applications don't mysteriously vanish from their screen. So one of the things I've always held up as important to me and enlightenment, and a lot of users have actually commented they really like it is, it comes with its own crash handler. So if it segfaults, 
it catches itself, pops up a little white box on the screen saying, I crashed, F1 <laughs> to restart or whatever, F2 to exit. <laughs> and it, you can attach GDB and check things out. But for most users, F1, and they can march on. You don't lose every application on your screen. Mm. Um, and that kind of attitude extends through almost all of the stack where there is code after code after code that actually has recovery mechanisms for you messed something up. Because the important thing, to me at least, in a lot of the work I do for Enlightenment EFL is there is an end user at the end of the day. And the end user is sitting around and suddenly they're dropped back to a login screen or they're using their terminal. Because remember, Enlightenment is not just a window manager anymore. It's actually a whole toolkit like GTK Qt, which is actually now 90% of the code, basically. It's about 1.2 million lines of code in EFL. And Enlightenment's about 280,000 lines of code. So it's pushing on 90% is in the libraries. Yeah. And I've also written terminology, written like terminal emulator, and written a bunch of other things. So you're working there in your terminal, and you're working on something, you're copying and pasting or doing something, you had scroll history, and the terminal vanishes. Now, a pure, really strict software engineer goes, well, you should always crash immediately, put in asserts and aborts all through your code when conditions are not right and the thing should exit. Fantastic if you're the engineer sitting in continuously having the thing under GDB and monitoring it and not eating your own dog food. Mm. You're, you're just running test suites. Really bad if you're eating your own dog food or it's an end user out there using your code and suddenly all their work just vanished. Yeah. So there are different levels of quality and you have to balance these things up against each other. Um, and having something that may have a, errors, bugs and mistakes in it, but is robust enough to march on yeah. and not just disappear from the screen mm -hmm. is a sign of quality that you care about the experience of your end user, even in the face of your own mistakes. Um, so, but the fact is you care, that you bother, that you spend the effort of putting the mechanisms in to ensure the quality that's there. So be that robustness for an end user, or even just putting in the right tooling in your software stack to detect bugs before the user finds them. So for example, you care enough to use what you write. There are enough people, engineers I find, they work on something and they never used it themselves. They just work on it from a spec sheet and they've never touched it or used it. They don't know how it works. They've never suffered their own bugs. They've just written it. And to some extent, that's a level of not caring. I think you should care. You should eat your own dog food. You should, and that makes you care. And you should care about eating your own dog food. You should use what you write and then make it robust for you. Make it so you can find the bugs early before the users do. But when a user gets it and there's a bug you missed, that at least they're not left in the lurch with you know an empty screen and having yeah. lost all their work. So caring about what you do is really important. Um, the quality of what it is you do and the output of it. So caring about the quality of what it is you do, you don't know that all of Enlightened EFL will use Coverity. You've heard of Coverity? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, Coverity is a static analyzer. It's commercial, you have to pay for it. Okay. Um, it's free for open source projects, just register. Mm. And it, finds all sorts of mysterious bugs that you never knew were in your code. Mm. Like, it can find amazing stuff. And a lot of projects put their code through Coverity as a static analyzer or code checker. And one of the things we really care about in Lightning Fell is what Coverity says about our code. We mm. run it through on a regular basis. 
Um, and we've gotten, for example, Enlightenment currently has three outstanding Caverity issues, full stop, out of all of the Enlightenment codebase. EFL has more, but it's a bigger codebase. But generally, Caverity is measured on a bugs per thousand lines of code. And so one equals, it finds one issue per thousand lines of code. Yeah. So long ago, when Caverity was kind of really kind of new, um, the documentation and information about Caverity said that most commercial-grade code that's released in products comes in at about approximately one bug per thousand lines of code, as far as Caverity is concerned. Mm. The Linux kernel is 0.4 or so. Last mm -hmm. I checked on Caverity recently. EFL is 0.2-something now. Enlightenment 0.01. <laughs> um, terminology and rage are 0.0, etc., etc. And there's a reason I say this. That number is kind of like a quality measurement of how much you care. Yeah. That you go and get someone to tell you, or something, a tool, to tell you the quality of your code. You listen to it, you pay attention to it, and you go and fix things. Mm. Um, and caring matters, because that's how you're going to eventually bring your bug count down, regardless of what language it is. That also includes compile warnings and other things. The fewer compile warnings you have, the more you seem to care. Um, because you want to get rid of that stuff, etc., etc., etc. Sometimes these tools are wrong. <laughs> I've, I've had the tools tell me th things like, "You shouldn't use Stircat." I just went, "Oh, it didn't figure out that I literally allocated a alloc the buffer to exactly the right size. I messed with the pointer a bit, jumped up and down. I did actually do it right, and I used Stircat because." Sterncat is not going to help. It's actually going to make the code more complicated. And I have seen people dumbly submit patches to kind of move Sturcat to Sterncat and then add bugs in the process because they got <laughs> N wrong. They yeah. put the wrong N in and the code was correct before they touched it. Mm. So you have to balance out what it says with what actually code is. But when it complains about something, it's a please look at this and double, triple, quadruple verify it and then either dismiss the bug because it, it is wrong or fix it because you know there's an issue. But you spend that time and effort doing it. You listen to what it says and you appease it and you know you massage it and say, no, no, you're wrong this time. <laughs> and Caverity allows you to tell, you know, tell it you're wrong. Sure. Uh, Clang Static Analyzer doesn't let you do that, which is why I don't tend to use it because it's much more painful in terms of signal-to-noise ratio. Yep. But Caverity is very good for signal-to-noise ratio, so I use it. But my advice to any engineer is, if you're doing something and you don't care about it, either find a reason to care about it or do something else mm. because you're doing the wrong thing in your life, um, whatever it is. Yep. Um, so care about what it is you do. And that leads to all the other good things. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been really interesting. No problem. <laughs>